Park Hopping Podcast number 60, Opening Years. Celebrating 11 years of posting Disney stuff on the internet. This is another crappy podcast production. Hi there, this is Alan from DisneyFans.com, and this is the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 60, the podcast that proves anyone can have their own podcast. Previously on the Park Hopping Podcast, I asked you a question. What is a Disney ride? Now today I'm going to use the recent updating of an original Epcot Disney ride, Mexico's River of Time, as an excuse to play some audio from that ride and discuss opening years at Epcot, Disney's Animal Kingdom, and Disney's California Adventure. Now, I've been fortunate enough to visit a few Disney parks during their opening year. Uh, In 2001, a girlfriend and I made a trip out to the Disneyland Resort, and we visited the new Disney's California Adventure about a week after it opened. Now, I'd expected opening week crowd levels to be high, and indeed, there were people camped out overnight to get in that first day, so we just decided to show up after the initial wave had died down a bit, and it worked out pretty well. I'm pretty glad we got to see the original version of that park. So many things that were part of that early visit are now gone, such as the excellent Hollywood and Dine uh, food court that had several different food locations and many different themed seating areas. It also had a ton of hidden Mickeys. And I dropped by hiddenmickeys.org sometime and searched for my name, and you'll find quite a few that we discovered there. I guess that's one advantage of being there so soon after opening. All the uh, hidden Mickey hunters haven't found everything yet. Now, today that location sits empty, but it is used from time to time for private parties and meetings. There were other things that are now gone, like um, Superstar Limo, which I talked about on show number three. Today, there's a new Munsters Incorporated ride that's taken over that spot. Also, in the Hollywood section of the park, there was a highly themed ABC soap opera bistro, a restaurant I would have completely avoided due to my non-interest in soap operas, but my girlfriend convinced me to check it out, and it became one of my favorite places in the park. You could dine in one of several themed areas. Um, They were recreations of famous sets from ABC soap operas. And uh, while you ate, a cast of improv performers might stop by and pull you into a cheesy soap opera plotline. And of course, being in Hollywood, your server would be an out-of-work actor practicing for an audition, so he'd slip into character during your meal. And the bussers were all dressed up like studio grips. And I met a really great cast member there named Elizabeth, who I've kept in touch with ever since. Uh, now today that restaurant is gone, and a Playhouse Disney show occupies that spot. But I still have fond memories of eating there, even if I didn't have any clue what any of the theming was from. The list of changed items in that one section of the park goes on even further with changes to street entertainment, streetmosphere performers, and the Hyperion theater shows. Yes, there was something there before the Aladdin musical. In fact, I'll be sharing videos and audios from two of the shows that were there before then, as well as videos of the soap opera bistro and all kinds of other things I've been unearthing as I've been importing my uh, 200 or so hours of digital video lately. And now in other areas of the park, there was a Wolfgang Puck Avalon Cove restaurant, and that's changed a few times to eventually become the non-Wolfgang Puck Ariel's Grotto Princess Dining Experience. You can read the history of that location over at the excellent Yesterland.com website. Werner recently posted a new Yester DCA page that'll give you more of the details of that eatery's history. And of course, the Mondavi Winery. Well, they no longer run the Golden Vine Winery in the park, which means my unopened, specialty-branded bottles of Moscato Bianco are probably worth a bit more right now. The branding was simply a little insert they put around the neck of the bottle, but, you know, it was kind of neat. 
I could probably talk for half an hour or more just going over things that existed during that opening week which are gone. Like the bee bodies on the Orange Stinger swing ride. I don't know how long those bee bodies were on the seats, but we saw them during that visit, then never again. Actually, they were there on one particular day, and then we went, to, we went back to the park a second day. They had already been removed. And I have photos to prove that at DisneyFans.com if you look in my California Adventures 2001 directory. Um, but I guess they were only there for about 10 days. Oh yeah, and there was an entire land that's gone. It was called Bountiful Valley Farm. It was replaced by, uh, it's a bug's land, and then the new Flix Fun Fair was added behind it. Now, now that I'm starting to think about it, there's really just been a ton of changes to this park uh, in all areas. I guess my point is, opening year is always special because it shows a park that is not yet finished being built and only beginning to be changed. Now, DCA wasn't my first opening year, though. In 1998, I visited Disney's Animal Kingdom. The park was so new, all the trees were being propped up by, by boards, and there were street parades that haven't been seen since, and the original version of the Flight of Wonder Bird Show featuring a hippie named Phoenix. I really liked that version better than the other two variations I've seen since. Before Nemo, there was a Tarzan Rock Show, but before the Tarzan Rock Show, there was a Jungle Book stage show near Dino Land. And the Dinosaur Ride was called Countdown to Extinction back then, since the Disney movie called Dinosaur wasn't even out yet. Actually, speaking of not out yet, in the heart of the Tree of Life, the icon of the park was a new 3D theater experience called It's Tough to Be a Bug. But the Pixar Bugs Life movie hadn't even been released to the theaters yet. I remember watching the movie and enjoying it, other than the stingers and the hornets and all the Black Widow spiders and all that stuff. But I had no clue who this Flick character or any of the rest of the gang was. Now, there's been other attractions that have opened up in a Disney park before the movie they were based on was out. Can you name the very first one? If you can, send me an email, podcast at DisneyFans.com, or call 206-2030-227 and leave a message. I'm not sure what to Google to find the answer, but I'm sure it's posted somewhere on the internet. Uh, but I digress. Disney's Animal Kingdom was already changing by my first visit. One attraction, those boats that travel around the Tree of Life, had already been closed. Uh, they would soon return briefly as a Radio Disney-themed attraction, but I missed that version too. When I was in the park the last time in December 2006, a boat still cruised around the lagoon, but the passengers were Disney characters on some kind of party tour. Many other things uh, changed um, in the years following opening. Outdoor theaters would get enclosed. New rides like the Cali River Rapids would be added. Entire new sections like the Chester and Hester's Carnival would be added. And yes, some areas would be renamed. Does anybody remember Conservation Station? Well, I have proof that it existed. I got a bunch of video from this. Uh, once again, I can easily think of dozens of changes made to the park within the first year it was open. One of the biggest to me was the addition of signage. When the park was new, there was very little directional signage. I mean, you know, there were signs all over, but there weren't these huge, big, colorful things you find now. During the opening morning rush, there would literally be hundreds of cast members all along the walkways in front of shops and restaurants guiding people to their destination. I mean, it seems Disney had underestimated how easy it was for us tourists to get disoriented there. But even with all these changes, uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom was instantly the most beautiful park I'd ever seen. It was so immersive, lush, and green, even if the trees were propped up by boards. Now, there are still a few mysteries that remain in my memory. 
First, where did the cave go where you could see the fire-breathing dragon? It was viewable from the boat ride, I think, but I'm pretty sure you could see it from other places in the park. I, I think I even have a picture of the fire somewhere. Also, during one of the World of Disney TV episodes, Michael Eisner introduced the episode from Animal Kingdom. Behind him, at the water's edge, was an animatronic dinosaur. Now, I never did see that dino, and I have no clue where it was installed. Does anyone remember seeing this in person? If so, you know the drill. An email or a phone call would be appreciated. Okay, two parks down. Now, also in 1998 was the grand opening of the new Tomorrowland at Disneyland. While this wasn't a whole new theme park, being there for the official grand opening was still pretty exciting. It was the first time I'd done that. There were TV crews everywhere, and the place was just mobbed. I, re I remember standing in line to ride the rocket rods several times over that visit, the longest time being like four hours. I have a full video of the rocket rods experience I'll also be sharing pretty soon. Um... Less than a decade later, the NASA space exhibit is gone, the make-your-own CD kiosks, which were a huge hit at opening, they're gone, the Observatron thing that replaced the old rocket jets is, well, I mean, it's still there, but it doesn't seem to do much anymore, though I do recall seeing it working briefly in 2005 for the, uh, the uh, 50th anniversary, so maybe that one doesn't count. Let's see, Space Mountain lost its golden color scheme, and Buzz Lightyear took over the queue area for the rocket rods. The high-tech Coca-Cola launcher didn't seem to be around anymore, and uh, neither are those cast members on rollerblades or the ones with the backpacks serving uh, sodas. Probably the most significant loss was all the merchandise. During this opening, you could buy almost anything with Tomorrowland on it, from keychains to candy. It was the strongest show of park-themed merchandise I've ever seen anywhere. But I guess not everyone wanted some overpriced jelly beans with a picture of Space Mountain on the back. It was very neat being there, though, with all these crowds, and it's the one and only time I've ever been in the park for a major reopening of a land. I've been around for other media events, but nothing on this scale. I can imagine that the 1980s redo of Fantasyland must have been similar, though hopefully there wasn't a four-hour line for Pinocchio. Moving back a bit further in time, probably my most favorite opening year was for Epcot, back in the summer of 1983 when the park had only been open about six or seven months. It was also known as EPCOT back then, those letters still standing for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. That original Epcot was very different from the park we have today. There was no Norway Maelstrom yet, Horizons wasn't ready, and most odd, there wasn't any Disney in the park. No Mickey Mouse. No Donald Duck. The only characters in the early years seemed to be that uh, robot in Future World, and a troll in Norway later, and Dreamfinder with Figment the Dragon. Now think about this for a moment. This was before Michael Eisner. Walt Disney had only been dead 16 years. The Magic Kingdom had only been open 11 years. And this was the first time Disney had built anything that wasn't going to be another Magic Kingdom park. There was Disneyland in California, the Magic Kingdom in Florida, and then this new park, Epcot. Very different from what we have nowadays. Epcot instantly became my favorite park, though today I'm back to preferring the fantasy elements of the Magic Kingdom parks, but that may have a lot to do with how Epcot has changed over the years. But in those early days, there was stuff there you couldn't begin to imagine seeing anywhere else. Animatronic adventures like Spaceship Earth, World of Motion, Horizons, Journey into Imagination, and Universe of Energy were just mind-boggling. But as the 1980s progressed, soon you could watch animatronic shows at the local mall or at Showbiz Pizza or Chuck E. Cheese. Today, you can buy animated Halloween displays with motion and sound that give some of those early 1970s designs a run for the money. 
So perhaps part of the appeal of Epcot was the technology of Epcot and the fact that it hadn't really been seen anywhere else. I specifically remember my family spending tons of time watching those jumping water fountains at the Imagination Pavilion, but today you can find them at convention centers in Chicago or at trendy shopping districts. But back then, there was a lot of patented technology making the park work. Now, the changes at Epcot over the years have been massive. Several of the original rides were torn down and replaced before they'd even reached 20 years old. That means today, someone the same age I was when I first visited Epcot is probably too young to have even ridden on, or at least uh, remember riding on, Horizons, World of Motion, or the original Journey into Imagination. Long gone is that crazy image works area upstairs in Imagination where kids could act in front of a green screen while their parents watched them superimposed into a video adventure featuring the Dreamfinder. Long gone is the original Communicore centers with that trivia playing computer that showed how to find one of the very first official hidden Mickeys. Gone is the roller coaster creating computer a decade before Disney's coaster would come to market. Anybody remember that one? All of this and more was there on opening year. And does anyone remember the World Key Information Systems? There was just a mention of them in uh, My Sage and Kevin Yee's column, uh, I think, this past week. Now, scattered around the park were video screens that looked kind of like ATM machines, though I don't think I'd even heard of an ATM machine back then. These kiosks let you touch the screen to pull up information about the park. You could watch short videos play describing a section or an attraction. You could read about a restaurant. And if you wanted to make a reservation, you could have a video call with a Disney operator. I mean, talk about high tech. Decades before we had webcams and video chat programs on our PCs, Epcot had a fiber optic network allowing two-way video conferencing throughout the park. This was simply amazing. I even had a pin pal who worked for Disney in that area for a few years. One of these years, maybe I'll find her old letters and see if I can track her down. I bet she has some stories to tell. Anyway, those kiosks were still in operation in the mid-1990s. I think maybe 94 or 95 was the last time I saw them working. But by then, they seemed so painfully slow. The monitors were in bad shape. The information was way out of date. Disney didn't even seem to have done anything to update the system over the years other than superimpose one of the new lands onto the old map screen. I mean, it was sad to see World Key in this shape, but even sadder to see the entire wall of them near guest relations boarded up a year or so later. Rest in peace, World Key. Well, though the concept still lives on today in shopping malls around the world with their informational kiosks, 25 years later I still can't touch a screen and talk to a human and ask for directions. Now, not everything was closed. Some things were just changed, like Spaceship Earth losing Walter Cronkite as a narrator, or Universe of Energy getting a whole new pre-show and adding celebrities. But every step of the way, something that made Epcot Epcot was removed, replaced, or, or altered away. Now, to be fair, pretty much everyone I know who visited Disney World in those early years always thought Epcot was boring. I'm sure that's fair when you compare it to the Magic Kingdom with all the exciting rides. And I'm sure not having Disney characters at a Disney park was a mistake. Disney did change that pretty quickly, but expectations are hard to overcome. Perhaps if Epcot had remained like it was and people learned what it was all about, it would have been able to win more people over. Or perhaps it still would have been seen as the place mostly for eating and shopping. Or, as it is today, a place for eating and shopping with two high-speed thrill rides. Anyway, the future science aspect of Epcot really won me over as a kid, which is why today I'm going to end this ramble by talking about World Showcase. The World Showcase we have today isn't too much different from the World Showcase I saw in 1983. 
Sure, there's a gift stand where the World Key Kiosk used to be, and a few countries and attractions have been added, but it's still mostly a big collection of highly themed shops and eateries. I guess I really never was a major fan of World Showcase. It wasn't until my trips in the late 1990s that I actually explored more of those shops and restaurants for the first time, thanks to a girlfriend. To me as a kid, World Showcase was just boring, except for my all-time favorite nighttime show, The Laserphonic Fantasy. This was an early Lagoon show made up of pyrotechnics and laser beams. Lots and lots of laser beams, and the soundtrack was a fully synthesized one done by Don Dorsey in the same style he did the Main Street Electrical Parade music. And since everyone loves the Electrical Parade and its music, how could one not love the classical synth track for this new show? Well, of course, forgetting the fact that people have different opinions when it comes to music and entertainment. Now, I don't remember much about how the show evolved, other than seeing them project lasers onto a small globe in the lagoon, then a year or so later they were projecting lasers onto the back of Spaceship Earth. It must have been an interesting moment when some show engineer said, Hey, do you think we could do the same thing on the big golf ball thing? It's hard to imagine a time when this wasn't the case, but then we're talking almost 25 years ago. Think of what a car was like in 1982, or a home computer. I mean, I had my very first home computer, a 4K Commodore VIC-20. No cell phones, no digital cable or satellite systems, and no Disney MGM Studios or Animal Kingdom. We're talking about a lifetime ago in theme park years. But I digress. Today on the Park Hopping Podcast, I wanted to end the show with a tribute to the latest original Epcot attraction to be altered, the Mexico Pavilion's River of Time boat ride. Unless you read absolutely no Walt Disney World news recently or listened to any Disney World podcast, you probably already know that this ride just reopened with a new cartoon-based Three Caballeros theme. Uh, This is something that had been rumored for many years, so I hope everyone had a good chance to shoot some extra video or take some extra pictures the last time you were out there. I sure did, because I knew it was going away. Now, since I've already heard audio from the new version of the ride about six times on other podcasts, I'm going to dip back into my 1999 digital recording and find a previous version as we take a slow boat ride through the Mexican equivalent of It's a Small World. But first, some history. Mexico was one of the original World Showcase pavilions when Epcot Center opened in October of 1982. It was unique because it was the only ride in World Showcase. The only other attractions were a few films and the massive audio-animatronic American Adventure. Perhaps this lack of rides, something theme park goers had been trained to expect from a Disney theme park, may have had something to do with Epcot being considered boring. Years later, when Norway's Maelstrom boat ride opened, including a small splashdown drop, the designers still managed to tag a long, boring movie onto it just in case people thought they were trying to make the park into something more interesting. Back in Mexico, that pavilion had a lot going for it. First, it was themed like a big pyramid, and inside you passed a small room with some museum-type displays, and then you entered the Mexican courtyard, which was made up to look like it was outdoors and at night. It was a lot like how Pirates of the Caribbean fills, or the whole uh, loading area from the Disneyland version. Now, Walt Disney World was never planned to have a Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and since it also didn't have a New Orleans-themed land, there was no reason to build a Louisiana-themed indoor Blue Bayou restaurant. This is a pity, since the Blue Bayou is one of the coolest places to eat anywhere in the world, at least in my opinion. It also means Disney can charge a premium price there for such a unique dining experience under a fake moonlit sky surrounded by water with boats passing through the bayou. So, for Epcot, Disney finally had a chance to duplicate the experience on the East Coast. 
The boat ride would use a similar ride system as Pirates or Small World. The indoor theming of the pavilion would allow them to build an indoor restaurant along the river's edge so diners could dine under a fake moonlit sky surrounded by water and boats passing through the bayou, or, or the Mexican River. Whatever. The point is, the boat ride in Mexico uh, is the closest thing to Disneyland's New Orleans Square Blue Bayou restaurant to be found anywhere in the Walt Disney World Resort. Of course, you can find one Louisiana Bayou artifact over at the Magic Kingdom outside of Pirates of the Caribbean. Do you know what or who it is? And since fake fireflies may make perfect sense in the swamps of Louisiana, but maybe don't fit in so well in Mexico, those amazing electric Disney fireflies wouldn't appear at a Disney World attraction until much later. And do you know which one uses that? Actually, there are some other fireflies, but uh, I'm going for something different. Where else do you see the fake fireflies? Now, if you want to play along, just send me an email, podcast at DisneyFans.com, or call 206-2030-227. But I digress. Now, where were we? Well, let me let me think about that. And while I do, let's hop aboard a pre-Three Caballeros version of the River of Time. Centuries ago, a great civilization flourished in Mexico. This advanced culture produced remarkable scientists, mathematicians, and builders of magnificent temples.
Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that trip and can get that song out of your head. You know, when my family first visited Epcot that summer, one of our favorite things was the section of this ride where you pass the street vendors trying to sell you stuff, and as the boat would drive by those projection screens, the hawkers would sidestep right along with you doing their thing. It was a really neat touch, and since I'd actually visited Mexico a few times as a kid, it seemed like an awesome touch of fun reality to the ride. The new version removes this element, which is a pity. It was sort of a predecessor to a modern trend of interactive movies like the Stitch phone at Disneyland or Turtle Talk. I mean, sure, the folks on the screen didn't interact with you as such, but the idea was similar, kind of like the pre-show at Rock and Roller Coaster many years later. As they say, old ideas never die at Disney, they just get souped up and changed into digital projections. And speaking of digital, the next time you're there, be sure to take an extra picture, shoot some extra video, because you really never know when something you like, love, or hate is going to go away and never be around again. And if you want to drop me a note, my email address is podcast at disneyfans.com. If you'd rather use the telephone, you can do that. You can dial 206-2030-ACP. That's for another crappy podcast. Again, 206-2030-227, and leave me a voicemail. This has been the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 60, opening years. Thanks for listening, and watch for tons of new video coming soon. Another crappy podcast production. Be sure to visit anothercrappypodcast.com to learn more about this and other equally exciting (sighs) podcasts.